Good morning. It is good to be with you. I uh, appreciate Chase's kind, encouraging introduction. Uh, I'm pretty certain there's no list where I am the A in that list. Uh, but it is good to open God's word with you together. Uh, I grew up in northern Kentucky, and so in 1997, I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, at that time, God was doing a work here in central Illinois, as Chase alluded to, as uh, Grace Church at, at that time was planting churches and, and planted Great Oaks. Uh, we found actually about a month ago in some of our archives a folder that said Great Oaks 1997, and it was just really exciting to see some of those initial mailers and the plant team that, that came from Grace and, and the elementary school where Grace or Great Oaks started to meet. And uh, what a privilege it is to be here um, 23 years later and see the work of God uh, in this community and in these communities as you have continued to be faithful to him. Uh, as we do a work together uh, to advance the kingdom of God and to reach the lost. I have a wife, Jamie. We have four kids, uh, 13, 11, 9, and 6, three girls, and then the boy. Uh, life is full for us. <clears throat> and as we come into Nehemiah, we continue the series uh, that Pastor Nate and Pastor Kevin have let out for us in uh, looking at the work of rebuilding. Uh, a story that is really incredible in nature as we see uh, a man who is serving the wealthiest king in the world centuries ago, but who has a love for his people and who is compelled to step out in faith and return to Jerusalem to see not only walls rebuilt, but the people of God renewed. And so uh, as you've walked through these first couple weeks in your series, as Pastor Nate has uh, launched off into that, we saw that rebuilding began with prayer. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah's prayer of, of conviction and of faith that then compelled him in chapter 2, as Pastor Kevin continued the series last week, rebuilding with trust. And the courage that it took for Nehemiah to ask of this king and to ask permission to go and to serve his people who he was so burdened for. In the intervening chapters, in chapters 3 and 4, we see that Nehemiah went, developed a plan, and the wall began to be rebuilt. In fact, as a teaser in chapter 6, uh, verse 15, we find out the wall will be finished in 52 days but not without difficulty. Chapter four, we see the people of God being threatened, Sanballat and others who are attacking not only the people, but the project. And so Nehemiah responds and courageously leads his people and they are literally building the wall with one hand as they hold a sword in another to protect and defend themselves. But this morning we come to chapter five. And chapter 5 presents a different kind of threat and a different kind of difficulty. Someone has said, what good is a wall if within it we exploit one another? And what we find is that the people of God, the people who have drawn together to do this work, to rebuild this wall, to begin to resurrect this city, are being threatened and challenged not by an external foe, but by each other. And so this morning we're going to look at, in verses 1 through 5, the corrosive selfishness of sin, 
in verses 6 through 13, through 13 confronting sin and how Nehemiah responds. And then we're going to conclude and spend most of our time in verses 14 to 19 and look at the Christ-like service, the example that Nehemiah sets. I love the book of Nehemiah. One of my favorite portions of Nehemiah is Nehemiah chapter 8, where after the wall is rebuilt, the people say, what's going to identify us? What's going to be our foundation? What's going to set the tone for who we will be moving forward? And what they do is they open the word of God, and for seven days they have a Bible conference where the Torah is read day after day, and then they have a feast and celebrate together. But as they do that... We're told, and Nehemiah records for us, this is an autobiographical book, that when Ezra stood up to read the law, that the people stood and listened. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is stand for the reading of God's word. If you aren't already there in your app or your phone, whether at home or here in the auditorium, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to read these verses together so we have a context for our time together. So let me invite you to stand. And we will read Nehemiah 5 together, and then I'll pray. Nehemiah writes, guided by the Holy Spirit, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I, this is Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But even you Sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. 
Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Father, we uh, open your word this morning expectantly. We praise you for the example of the generations who've gone before us, who have trusted in you explicitly in difficult times, in times of conflict, even amongst the family and people of God. So may we learn from these exiles who had returned, who were not only attempting to build a wall again, but be renewed in their hearts to be stirred up as your people as they waited expectantly for Messiah to come. Speak to us now, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Verses 1 through 5 talk about the corrosive nature of selfishness. And the picture we have here is a people sacrificially serving, attempting to build a wall. But as they did that, their sacrifices were beginning to stack up. The cost was becoming great. Their involvement in the work of God was becoming more and more difficult to bear. Not necessarily because it was hard work to build a wall, but because as they were building a wall, the farms back home were starting to suffer. The debt that was growing didn't seem to stop. Verse 2 speaks of the famine of large families. I can attest to that as a father of four, that four children eat a lot of food. Six people in a household eat a lot of food. And so they say in verse 2, with our sons and our daughters, we are many And we need grain just so we can eat. But the debt is piling up as well. We are mortgaging our fields. They have to pay taxes to this Persian king, Artaxerxes. But beyond the famine and the debt and the taxes, perhaps most heartbreaking as we come to verses 4 and 5 is that they are enslaving their children to try to balance the balance sheet. This is a historical practice. It's not unheard of. But these Jewish families were having to send away their sons and perhaps most critically here their daughters and there's even a hint of prostitution and the possibility of that that could occur because the burden was so great. 
It is not an unfamiliar thing for the people of God to experience difficulty. It's heartbreaking when the people of God are experiencing difficulty because they're being exploited by one another. It's like what we read in Acts chapter 6 when the New Testament church is growing and people are being saved and all of a sudden the widows cry out because their needs aren't being met even though the word is being preached and people are trusting and beginning to follow Jesus. Here, a wall is being built. But as it's being built, the people of God are being exploited by their Jewish brothers. And we find in verse 6, it's the nobles and the officials. It's their kin. As they cry out, and you'll notice it's men and women, it's husbands and wives crying out against their Jewish brothers. Our flesh is as their flesh. Our children is as their children. They play together, and yet they are exploiting us. They are attacking us. They are taking every penny we have. These are, as Pastor Chase said, extraordinary times that require flexibility on our parts as a society. But in the midst of a pandemic, the, the challenges and the issues of justice have become more and more prominent in the world that we're a part of. How do you respond when injustice is raised? How do we, as the people of God, as the New Testament church, as followers of Jesus, respond when issues like racial reconciliation come to the forefront and demand our attention? And our faith calls us to response. Whether it's systemic racism, whether it's our own individual experiences and perhaps prejudice that we've never considered before. Nehemiah, as the leader of these people who has moved from being cupbearer to the king to, we'll find later in this chapter, governor of this area, faces this question, how will I respond when I see my people being exploited? We see in these first five verses and are reminded of the truths that our personal sin affects others. And other sin affects us. And so Nehemiah has to deal with the people being affected, being exploited. And he has to face and does face this corrosive selfishness head on. And that's what he does in verses 6 through 13 as we look at him confronting sin. Verse 6, Nehemiah enters into the narrative and he says, I was very angry. We know from the New Testament that there is righteous anger. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus models it to us many times in his life, perhaps none more prominent than when he clears the temple, as we read in Mark 11. So there is righteous anger, but I think there's an instructive uh, point here for us to notice as we move quickly into his confrontation He was angry when he heard their outcry and these words. And then verse 7, I took counsel with myself. Literally in in the Hebrew, it's I, I spoke to my heart. And so he reconciled the righteous anger that he felt seeing this injustice and exploitation. But before he spoke physically, 
He spoke to himself internally. A good challenge and reminder for all of us in our relationships, in our marriages as parents. Anger is something, I, when I take survey of my own anger, 95%, perhaps even a greater percentage of my own anger is unrighteous. It's impatience. It's frustration. It's selfishness. But Nehemiah here models righteous anger and before speaking externally, speaks to himself, gathers his heart, and then beginning the second part of verse 7, he confronts these nobles and officials. There's a sense here where he follows what Jesus will lay out in Matthew 18 of these principles of confrontation. It says he, the, he brought these charges against the nobles and officials But then later in the verse, it'll say, I held a great assembly against them. So the picture we have is that he comes to these nobles and officials and he says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Which at face value doesn't seem like a big deal to us. We have mortgages, we pay interest on many things in this life, even today. But this interest is extravagant. Exodus 22 in the Pentateuch gave specific instructions for how the people of God should treat one another, even in business dealings. And Nehemiah presumes and believes and expects that these nobles and officials would have known what the law said and how they should respond and care for each other as family. The story is told during the Revolutionary War in its third year that the Continental Army army was suffering. Clothes were threadbare and blankets were so rare that soldiers sometimes stayed up all night so that they would not die and risk freezing to death. When the French general Marquis de Lafayette arrived, he saw men whose legs were black and in need of amputation. The trouble was not the severity of the winter, this pastor tells the story, which by some standards was a mild one. The issue was that the army had no clothes because merchants in Boston refused to move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from, wait for it, 1,000 to 1,800%. They did this to their own people out of greed. Nehemiah is confronting the greed of these nobles and officials, and he moves from a private conversation to a public assembly. And it's noteworthy to us that while the work of God is of great priority, the rebuilding of the wall is of great urgency, Nehemiah said, put down your shovels because we have to meet together. Because what value will the wall be If because of this exploitation and lack of care, we cease to be family. And so Nehemiah confronts these nobles and officials. Not only is it the exacting of interest in verse 7, we see that they are selling off these indentured servants in verse 8, which, according to Leviticus 25, compels the people to buy back these servants from the nations. So these nobles and officials receive these children. They sell them to the nations, the Gentiles. The Jewish people who are already in debt have to go rescue these who've been sold off and bring them back. It's a vicious cycle. And Nehemiah says, it's your fault. 
It's because of you and your greed that we are at this place. And not only are they exacting interest, not only are they selling off their family. We see in verse 9 that there is a third offense. And that is that because of their actions, as they are known as the people of God, these Jewish officials, that they are inviting the taunts of the nations who are their enemies. It is one thing, as we read in chapter 4, when Sanballat and others mock these people as they build a wall. That's to be expected. Why would they agree with and celebrate the work of God when they don't believe in him at all? But it's another thing entirely. When the people of God and the family of God stop acting like they believe in him. And so Nehemiah confronts them amidst this great assembly and says, your actions invite the taunt and invite the dishonoring of God when you claim his name. In 1 Peter, we see a, a New Testament corollary to this. Where Peter, as he is challenging us as exiles how to live for Christ in this world. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. For this is a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin or are beaten, you endure but when you do good and suffer for it, this is gracious in the sight of God. These nobles and officials were dishonoring God, exploiting their kin, and Nehemiah confronts them in it. And he challenges them in verse 10, let us abandon this exacting of interest. He gives them a plan for repentance. Return to them all these things that you have exacted from them. And in verse 12, there is repentance. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. But it's fascinating. Nehemiah doesn't just accept this at face value. He says, okay, I'm grateful to hear that you recognize that you need to change. But I'm going to call you to swear to it in front of the priest and in front of this assembly. And then I'm going to speak a curse upon you, as he does in verse 13, if you don't do what you've said that you will do. And all the assemblies said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. We've seen corrosive selfishness and the effects of sin and how it tumbles over into the lives of others. We've seen Nehemiah confront sin and the action he took. And in chapters 4 and 5 and into 6, we see Nehemiah responding to the challenges before him as he seeks to accomplish the mission he came to do. But as the author, Nehemiah takes a step back here and he pulls the lens out. And he speaks to not only just these moments, these days, but he looks back on his 12 years of leading these people. 
he makes an editorial comment, which we could consider to be self-serving, but I don't think it's that at all. I think it's instructive and it challenges us as we see one who came as a cupbearer, became a governor, but even more than that was a servant and a shepherd to these people. And it's Nehemiah's example that really becomes the bridge to us, not only to an Old Testament story about a wall being built, but spiritual renewal that takes place and ultimately points us to, need, points us to our need for one who is greater than Nehemiah, Jesus Christ. Because as we come to verses 14 and 19, we see Christ-like service on the part of this cupbearer. He says and writes, From that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah for 12 years. And during that time, he writes in the end of 14, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So the picture is pretty straightforward. As the governor, as an emissary sent out from the Persian king, he had the right to demand a food allowance. He had the right to raise taxes, to take land, as he'll talk about later in this section. He has the opportunity made available to him because of the privileges of his position to expect certain things. Because of who he is and who he was sent by, there are certain riches and pleasures that he could enjoy which were accepted as being acceptable. In fact, those who've gone before him did just that. He says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. It's a good reminder to us as we read about the servants who followed the examples of their governor that there are those watching and mimicking our actions and our decisions every day. But Nehemiah says, I did not do so. And there's two reasons that he gives in these verses that he does not act in this way. He does not take the food allowance. He does not acquire land. He relinquishes his rights and privileges. The first we see several times because of his care for the people. He says, the heavy burdens on the people. He did not want to lord it over the people. Because the service was too heavy on the people in verse 18. Nehemiah's actions and his decisions, what he chooses to do and not to do, are informed by who he cares for. And we see that he did not come to Jerusalem to make a name for himself. Think about all that he left behind, all the riches as the cupbearer to the king. In fact, we find that Nehemiah is incredibly wealthy. He talks about how they were killing an ox a day and six choice sheep so that he could be hospitable and welcoming to all these Jews and officials. If you do the math over 12 years, <clears throat> excuse me, that's 4,380 ox, 26,280 sheep and birds that were slaughtered so that he could have meals for people. Nehemiah was a wealthy man, but his wealth did not own him. Instead, he used it as an opportunity to be generous. In fact, he served at great cost these people so that they could accomplish their mission. So it was a love for his people, which we saw beginning in chapter 1. 
the burden that he felt when he heard of the ruin that they were experiencing. We see it manifested here in his generosity and not laying additional tax and burden upon them. But even more than that, his primary motivation, he says in verse 15, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Really what Nehemiah is doing is living out the great commandments that Jesus challenges us to fulfill as his people in loving God and loving others, as we see in Matthew 22. The fear of God is is a term that really in our 21st century uh, Christianity is is difficult to define. It It is not a fear of something necessarily that terrifies us at face value, but the fear of God is what we see Isaiah representing and and modeling when he is called to be a mouthpiece for God and he has the vision of God in the temple and he says, woe is me as he beholds the glory and the holiness of God and pictures it in the temple, he recognizes how sinful he is and how unworthy he is to fulfill that mission and to be in God's presence. Nehemiah, as he leads, as he seeks to accomplish a great mission, but even more be a part of the renewal of God's people, recognizes that he does so Only because God makes it possible. Only because it is God's will for him and for these people. And they will only succeed if God allows. And so Nehemiah models this Christ-like service. Being willing to forego indulgence and privilege. Food and money. Because the mission was greater. He concludes in verse 19 this prayer, and we've seen him pray this uh, already. He'll pray it again in chapter 13. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was living by faith expectantly for what was unseen. He had a, a view of God's greater story. And he was willing to go forego living for what was seen and visible with the expectation of what was still to come. I'm thankful for Nehemiah's example here in these verses where he shows us that there is something greater than food and money. There is something greater than prestige and privilege. That the good of God's people the kingdom work advancing is far greater. These unique and extraordinary times that we live in have brought unique challenge and difficulty to us. And I think really have even turned us more inwardly focused where the idea of survival and and health become prominent. Nehemiah here encourages us as we fulfill the mission that God gives to us, And as we care for one another while we do so, that there is something greater still to come. Some questions for reflection as as we wrap up our time in Nehemiah 5 this morning. So much of this chapter speaks to wealth and generosity. I'd encourage you to consider, does your fear of God inform your stewardship 
As you think about your balance sheets, whether you're 15 or 55, does your stewardship find its guide in your relationship with the Lord? Does your stewardship enhance the reputation of God before the world and before your neighbors? As they watch you spend your money and as they know that you claim Christ and relationship with him, do you glorify God through how you spend your treasures or as Nehemiah confronted the nobles and the officials, does it invite the taunts of the nations because of your lack of stewardship? Generosity takes many forms. Financial, yes, but gifts, talents, abilities, time. And so I appreciate and we'll finish up with this quote from C.T. Studd. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. May all of us model this Christ-like service, this Christ-like generosity that Nehemiah models to us in chapter 5. I'm excited for you guys to continue this series together. Pastor Dan will be in chapter 7 of Nehemiah next week. Let's pray together before the worship team comes back to the platform. Father God, this morning uh, we are reminded of several themes from your word of the devastating effects of sin and selfishness and how it can affect us as your people. How it can affect the family of God together and how sometimes the greatest threat to, threats to us are not outside the walls but inside the walls. We're reminded of our responsibility to one another and even as Nehemiah confronted these brothers, these nobles and officials, it challenges us to in love being willing to speak truth. And Father, as we look at Nehemiah and his example, his sacrificial service to these people over a decade of generous love, we see a shadow that points us to Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But as Paul writes in Philippians 2, he willingly took on the form of a servant. Willingly lived a sacrificial life. Willingly bore my sins on the cross. And not only was that sacrifice, but had victory over the grave so that we could have hope. So that as Nehemiah prays, we can invite God to remember us in the future because the future is greater than today. So Father, I thank you for these truths. I thank you for this body of believers here at Great Oaks. Father, right now, as believers, we're scattered. We, we miss the body of believers that we gather with and delight in. And so even in absence, Father, draw them together. Give them a, a kinship and a, 
strengthening of their bonds as they follow you and as they love each other. Protect them, Father. I pray for the Big C Church today and for this church and for Grace Church and the churches of Central Illinois that we would protect ourselves from the foes who are outside and that we would unite together as we're inside your family so that we can fulfill your mission. For these people, centuries ago, it was building a wall. For us today, it's reaching the lost, making disciples, being a people who are not bound by any wall, but who are drawn together in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this morning.